Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Witt, and this is Margins. After a short hiatus over the summer months, I'm very happy to be back with new episodes. Margins is our podcast where we have conversations with change agents. This time, we're very happy to have a former Quad Cityan join us, Reverend April Johnson, the Executive Director of Reconciliation Ministry for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Well, April, it's so great to have you here. It's great to have you back in the Quad Cities. Uh, a lot of people out there might not realize it, but uh, April and I worked together years ago. When I first started at Augustana, uh, she was working on uh, diversity and inclusion work at Augustana, working with students as well as working in uh, ministries here at Augustana. And she was one of the first people to really show me around and, and welcome me to the Quad City. So I definitely want to thank her for that help and friendship from so long ago. And it's great to be able to sit and have a conversation with you where we could take a little bit of time to talk about bigger issues, issues like diversity, inclusion, and equity, and how they're so important to the types of institutions uh, where we work now with me working at uh, a college and with you uh, working for a religious denomination. Uh, I guess before we would really jump into anything, could you just tell me a little bit about uh, some of the work that you do uh, for your denomination? Well, good. Well, first, Chris, I want to say thanks for inviting me uh, to your show. And it's so good to be back in the Quad Cities and to be reunited with you. This has been a sweet reunion. Um, I'm grateful to be back at Augustana. It's just like coming home. So I'm glad um, for this welcome and also this invitation. So I serve the Christian Church Disciples of Christ as uh, Minister of Reconciliation. My official title is Executive Director of Reconciliation Ministry for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in the United States and Canada. And what that means is that I have the privilege to equip the church in all of its expressions, and we say that our expressions are our national expression or our general expression, our judicatory, which is our regional expression, and our congregation. So all of our church to represent them and to equip them to do the work of um, awareness around racial and social justice and equip them to move um, beyond awareness to action. So much much of that is what my ministry does, and it takes many forms because in each expression uh, there are different ways in which we need to understand how racial and social justice impact, as we talked earlier, our mission um, in terms of how we uh, present um, the gospel of Christ. And when we're thinking about these types of institutions, if it be a church, if it be a college or university, these are places that have long histories. These are places where you have lots of different people coming to them for different reasons and different ways. Um, Why might it be so important, I guess, first, for the people who are in leadership, the people who are charged with really furthering the mission of these types of institutions to really embrace reconciliation or to embrace uh, new forms of diversity and, and look to include different people in what they're doing? From your perspective, being that you've worked on both sides, you've been in higher ed, you've been uh, working at a denomination. You know, one of the things, Chris, that I say that I learn every time we do any type of awareness and equipping training is that we're so not aware of how institutions function as uh, intersectional systems of practices and policies. And so what I learn every time we do a training is that 
um, our institutions indeed do have histories. And unfortunately, in the uh, United States and North America, so including Canada in many ways, we have a long history of oppression. And um, much of the work that we do, and we talk about doing anti-oppression work and anti-racism work, we believe that we are anti uh, other people who do that. But in our work, we actually embrace our history, not for the um, the guilt that it invokes or for the shame, but we embrace our history so that we can, as the Ghanaian proverb says, so we can look back in order to move forward. And so much of um, our um Education is rooted in a historical context because many of us have a mission that is toward inclusion. But if we realize that the reason why we don't have inclusion is because of the fact that our systems have never been um, critically examined to see how our practices and policies have not been adjusted to the ways in which we invite folks to be people to be a part of our mission, and yet our policies and practices have always not included them. And so once we become aware of the ways in which we have historically excluded or advanced oppression, we realize that that is counter to our actual mission, and then we can begin to examine those policies and practices to see how we can move those to be effective toward our um ultimate goal, which is the goal of inclusion. I mean, I really like, you know, you referring back to the Ghanaian proverb. It makes me think of the imagery of the Sankofa mm-hmm. and looking back to look forward. And that a lot of times that is something that's important to institutions, but as well as all the people within institutions in terms of if they are people who could be considered as making the most or benefiting from privilege, or if they're people that could be considered, you know, at some point being part of an oppressed group. If people aren't taking the time to really look back together and figure out where are those points of privilege, where are those points of oppression, then you end up having a warped sense of the current times, a warped sense of your current reality. And and that's something that I see that could be very problematic when we start to talk about advancing missions overall and advancing diversity and inclusion at a college, in a church, anything like that, where you have these different families, these different communities that all have to share some sort of space be it an actual physical space or be it, you know, more of, I guess you could say like an ethereal type space. But when they're sharing that space and they're not really owning up to the good and the bad of the past, then how do you move forward? I mean, we hear people talk about that in families all the time, that if the family is to grow, that they have to look at the good and the bad and figure out who did what for whom and what did who did what to whom. But then when we move into these institutions, a lot of times it feels like we try to abandon that, that we feel like, hey, we could just start fresh. It's 2017 and we want to have this diversity and inclusion mission. So we're not going to worry about any of the outside factors in the world. We're not going to worry about any of the factors inside our institution. We could just forget about that and move fresh. Have you run into that where people are like, why are you worrying about the past? We're moving forward. I run into it again as I talked about those three expressions of the church, but I, I ran into it when I was here at Augustana, particularly when I shifted. Well, actually, it really wasn't a shift when I moved from the role of associate college chaplain to assistant uh, dean of students uh, and director of um, diversity services. I remember that we really had an issue with students not understanding 
really some of the cultural history of Augustana, and not just the Swedish culture, but the cultural history of what it means to be a student navigating this predominantly white context, um, as well as um, students of color that were here that were not aware that how many students of color had been here that whose shoulders in which they stood on, who made the way. I mean, they were aware of some of the organizations that they started. Some of those organizations survived and some of them did not survive. And I believe they did not survive because there was not a sense of, as you said, some of those, um, a lot of our systems within our institutions are very similar to family systems. And so we tend to be ashamed of the brokenness that's in family systems. And one of the things, I'm also a preacher, as you know, so one of the things I think about when we talk about brokenness um, in our structures, in our institutions, and I always say those those lead to policies and practices. When we um, think of brokenness as something to a- avoid or to ignore or to shame, then what happens is we don't give the power that we have to break the things that need to be broken. So um, we learn this at a, an academic institution that prepares leaders for tomorrow, that we learn that we, um, in our family systems, we have to break some of those patterns of behavior that continue to um, injure the family. And so I believe that when it comes to oppression in the church and the um, um uh, college or the uh, academic institutions that we have to break those patterns that continue um, to cause harm. And I think that's one of the things that that helps us um, move forward to advance our mission to understand that we talk about anti-oppression, anti-racism, that that is a powerful um, uh, language, a powerful language that we can use to say that we're not anti-skinheads. We're not anti-folks that we associate with oppression. We're anti the ways in which the systems and the histories that we have ignored uses us in ways that are not life-giving. And I believe that happens both in the church and uh, in the academy. So, yeah, so I see that a lot. And, again, in those different expressions of the church, realize that uh, congregations in particular, which is our, our main focus in a congregationally-driven denomination, uh, have a lot of family systems uh, history that often new pastors come in and don't realize some of the brokenness that has not been addressed. And so they can't get to any type of transformation work within that congregation or namely in that community because they don't know the history uh, where there has been some families that have been um, broken by maybe maybe they were not the right kind of um, people uh, in that church. So a lot of times I'm in a denomination that's predominantly white. Um, we have probably about less than 20% people of color in our denomination. And we have a lot of congregation to say, well, how do we use the work that you um, do because our denomination, our congregation is so homogenous. And I said, you know, I was sitting um, with a professor once who said that, who was also a pastor, who said, so many of us think that we're homogenous, but have we thought about the fact that the Jenkins and the Johnsons have been feuding for years and nobody knows why they're upset with each other? Mm-hmm. And so when we ignore like what that trigger may have been, maybe Miss Jenkins brought the wrong casserole in 1890 and... And Ms. Johnson can't appreciate that. And so the whole family is upset about that, but nobody knows it was about a casserole. Mm-hmm. 
you know, or the old um, metaphor that people use, you know, um, with the woman trying to make the ham and her husband finally asked her, why do you always cut the tail off the ham? And she said, because my grandmother did it. And then they asked her grandmother, the grandmother says, my grandmother did it. And finally got to the great-grandmother, and the great-grandmother said, because we didn't have a pan big enough. Mm-hmm. But because we never asked the right questions, because of shame and brokenness, we end up repeating the past. Um, and that actually um, becomes um, something that becomes a, a, a barrier to our advancing our missions of inclusion. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we start looking at these institutions, that sometimes people almost decide to want to take an easy path. If they say, well, hey, we, we on the surface, we're a homogenous organization. We're more of a homogenous college or denomination or whatever it's going to be. And they forget that diversity can come in so many different forms and that in order to be open to people who would be more traditionally different, you have to be open to the people who are different who are already there. Exactly. That each one of us has so many different intersecting identities that, that we identify along lines of gender and sexuality and the deepness of our faith and our occupation, our education, our various interests, our geographic origins, who are our friends, who are not our friends. All these different things factor into us making the, being these different individuals. And sometimes I think that institutions end up underselling themselves when they say, well, we really don't have a lot of diversity. That's not to say that they should get a free pass to not look into racial or ethnic diversity or religious diversity, whatever it's going to be. But they certainly need to examine what forms of diversity they already have and how are they working that diversity and really embracing those differences and helping the people advance as a way to figure out, all right, if we can do this well, then maybe we can bring in people who physically look different or, or are different in whatever other way. And I mean, you even think about age and, and levels yes. of ability and all kinds mm-hmm. of different things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Ableism. I mean, the isms can we can continue to add to the list of isms. Right. But one of the things I liked about what you said is that so one of the ways that distinguishes and not necessarily um, sharply, but distinguishes maybe the academy from um, the religious institutions uh, is that in the academy we can have a critical intellectual analysis of what we're up against. I mean, that's our charge. I remember as a first-year advisor, often I had to explain to parents that we aren't going to undo everything your child learned in Sunday school by requiring they take two, religion, two courses in religion during their time here at Augustana, but we are going to require that they have some type of critical intellectual examination of religion, not as it impacts their faith. Our hope is by the time they leave that it does indeed impact their faith as a liberal arts institution. Similarly, in the religious institutions or in the congregational setting, um, we have folks that need to be able to do some type of critical examination, but we often are not in a posture to do that because we want to start the conversation in a place where people aren't. So one of the things that I've come to after nine years of being at the denominational level is that I have invited people into a conversation. Because one of the things I've realized, which is proven by our conversation here today, is that you can't agitate people around something that is very um, sensitive but yet crucial to our advancement unless you have relationship with them. And so one of the things that we, in the academic setting, we do that through um, intellectual challenge. 
in the congregational and religious setting, we do that through challenging the scriptures that we um, that we subscribe to. We do that through challenging ourselves to be in fellowship. And one of the biggest things that I became adjusted to was how do we make the coffee hour in church part of worship? Not necessarily extended worship, but that time should also be worship. So one of the things that we are starting now is that um, I am a person who loves tea. And I love the fact that outside the United States, particularly in Europe, that people take tea. But in the United States, we don't take time to do anything. We just keep moving. Um, and so I thought, what happened if in our congregations, instead of saying, let's have a educational program or workshop around anti-racism, which scares most people because we said that bad word, racism, they don't, they're not going to readily or comfortably be present for that conversation. What if we had a conversation around tea. So um, we've implemented something called one bag of tea, one conversation, one relationship. Now, my goal is to get you to have that conversation about tell me something about your faith. Tell me something about what you think is the biggest challenge of this congregation. Tell me what brings you the most joy. So if we have those kinds of conversations then my hope is that then we can have conversations about why is building a wall on the southern border of the United States problematic to some and not to others. We can have, but if we leave with that conversation without relationship, then we uh, will stall out, kind of like a, a plane trying to take off too soon. And so I think there's there's a synergy there in which both types of institutions have the opportunity. It's just our starting point. But each of us are inviting people into an ongoing conversation. That's the beauty, I think, particularly of um, uh, private liberal arts colleges or just liberal arts colleges is that we have the opportunity to invite people into a conversation. It's just the level where we begin that conversation. I mean, conversations and relationships and taking the time to really build trust, that's the best way that I've ever found to really move forward on these things where people feel like they could be heavy issues. But at the same time, I know that I've encountered times where I have to not tread lightly, but I have to tread carefully when trying to bring as many people as possible on board, being at a predominantly white institution, being somewhere that is historically uh, predominantly white, me being a black man, um, that there, these conversations definitely occur. And, and I've had some success in leading those conversations and leading the building of these this trust and these relationships. But I still have a dynamic that's a little bit different than sometimes some of my white colleagues. They may have a different approach that they need to take. Have you found being in uh, a majority white uh, denomination, being a black woman, are there any ways in which that you have to maybe navigate or at least be cognizant of your identity when you're trying to get these conversations or getting this work, you know, kind of on the radar? Right. So one of the things in my work that I um, have the privilege to do is that when I talk about having an educational program that is both awareness and equipping, that I actually contract trainers to do that. So I'm not always a trainer. I want to be because I'm a preacher and I like to talk. But the reality is there are people that we can contract that have similar passion but have um, 
uh, time and relevance. So one of the models that we've adopted um, is that whenever we do anti-racism or anti-oppression training, we have a person of color and a white person. Because there's certain things that I cannot say um, in a white context that is going to have validity to a white lived experience. Similarly, there are certain things that a white person, male or female, cannot speak into a context where people of color are present that actually is going to resonate with them or have any type of legitimacy. And so um, I try to make sure that when my trainers go out to do a training that they are partnered with someone. We try to have gender um, diversity. We're expanding our anti-oppression um, equipping so that we can have also someone who is not straight, you know, someone who's not heterosexual. Um, I, I have folks teaching me every day up things that I have to unlearn. So uh, having more than one voice, I'm very aware that there are things. I say this all the time when they, they do allow me to do the training. Obviously, when they allow me to do the training, when they do allow me to do trainings, I always say I want to, I want to put a bookmark here to let everyone in the room know that I have no idea what it's like to be a white man. But I got to confess, there's many a day I want to know because there's a lot of privilege associated with that. But the reality is, with privilege is a cost. And so I may want to know, but I may not be able to pay the cost. And so the reality is, is that there's certain things I know I cannot speak into a white person's lived reality. And that's really hard because, again, we talk about systems. If you're a person that benefits from a system, you don't recognize that. So very often, particularly in the times that we live in now, we um, tend to want to tell people what they're experiencing. And so we assume that we all um, are experiencing the same thing. While we may all want some of the same things, we all want security. Uh, we all want to know that our families are going to be taken care of. Um, we all want food, housing, um, shelter, I mean, shelter, and clothing. And we, um, we all want that security of those things. How we get at that and how the system in which we lived in provides access to that is very different. And so how do we bring people into the awareness that that's different? Because many of us think, uh, particularly in the United States uh, culture of meritocracy, that we all have access similarly to the same things, and it's just not true. So if I were to say, no, I don't have the same opportunities as um, a white woman of my same uh, credentials and uh, gender, I mean, um, and age has... That may not resonate well with white women in the room who don't have any sense of the systems that they've benefited from. That makes sense. So, yeah, so it is, it is a very uh, sometimes tentative uh, type of work. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of times people don't recognize the ways in which they've benefited from systems around them. And even when sometimes people may start to recognize benefits, be it, you know, gender benefits, race benefits, whatever it's going to be, social class benefits, a lot of times, especially in the United States, we choose to suppress that. We don't want to have those conversations because we are the nation of rugged individualism, yes. American exceptionalism, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. So regardless of who helped you, how you were helped, how the system maybe worked out well for you but didn't work out well for other people who are similarly qualified but maybe differently, mm -hmm. different in some other way, People want to kind of steer away from that more than even some other tough conversations because sometimes
sometimes I think it it does kind of dig at the core of what people think of themselves, that we kind of build these facades on, hey, I built all of this and it, it wasn't due to anything else. But when we start to unpack those systems and we unpack privilege and oppression and everything else, that it can end up being something that's uncomfortable for lots of people, not just white folks, for people of color, for straight folks, for able-bodied people. I mean, we go down the line in different dynamics. So we, we do have to be careful and have to be mindful that people are going to sometimes be resistant when we try to get them to have those conversations. The work is courageous. It is a work, it is a work of co- courage. Sometimes it's a work of mustering courage. Sometimes it's just raw courage or raw bravery. Um, and what, I, what I have learned is that when we are, again, in relationships, so part of um, one of the things that we do once we bring awareness is then we try to teach people how to organize. And I fundamentally believe that organizing is an inside job. And so part of organizing is um, coming to a place where we can agree that we have shared values that we want to work on and that we want to produce in our institutions or in our communities. And once we discern what that one shared value we want to work on in community organizing, they call it a campaign. But when you start working on a campaign, then um, you learn what we call the art of the one-on-one. And and you've probably heard this before because you do community organize, which I think is the beauty of what you're doing here. And that is once you start having a one-on-one conversation, it's not about, and as a preacher, it's really hilarious because being a pastor is inherently, the one-on-one is inherently pastoral, and yet it's amazing how much as pastors we don't listen. <laughs> we listen to talk, but the one-on-one is about listening. And so sometimes listening is courageous because you find out some things when you're actually actively listening that make you extremely uncomfortable. Again, so we talked about history. There's some things about our histories that are not very pleasant. But if we're unable to name them, then we're, we give them way more power than they deserve, and they become barriers to our advancement as opposed to um, simply uh, gateways for us to mature and to move into the next, um, we would say in a church, the next mission field. So um, so one of the things that is really important is that we muster the courage that well, we, um, part of community organizing, that you're never, out, you're never by yourself. So if you can't muster the courage, then you surround yourself with folks who, as, as Les Brown would say, who give you a home court advantage, people who can see it for you. And so part of that is, you know, in these institutions where we're not really ready to change our policies and practices, it's because we haven't had the courage, the collective courage, not just the individual courage, the collective courage to hold each other accountable, to move, to make those barriers gateways instead of leaving them as obstacles for advancement. And so that's really what the work is. It is courageous. Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not hard. I mean, think about the basic family systems. There's some things, and particularly, Chris, you probably know about this, maybe not. We have very, we're similar. We have very different backgrounds. Um, I'm first generation. You know, you're not first generation college educated. Um, But there's certain things in the black and brown communities that we all have these expressions in our house. So have you heard this one? What goes on in this house stays in this house. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot. So when you say it in front of white people, they're like, what? Yes. I mean, so there's a lot of shame with being part of an oppressed community. And so we don't share our pain uh, because we were taught in our formative years that you don't share your pain or I know you heard this, which makes me sad because we're a different generation. I'm sad that my generation, with you folks who would have raised you, still had to say this to you. You have to be twice as good. For uh, half as much. Yeah. Oh, so you yeah. know, right. Yeah, yeah, I heard it. Twice exactly. as good for half as much. And, you know, don't don't go airing 
your dirty laundry. And I mean, that's one of those things that really played out when myself and my cousins and everybody, when we really want to hear the histories of our family Mm -hmm. and you want to hear about Jim Crow segregation and you want to hear about all these things where we had grandparents and aunts and uncles who a lot of times didn't want to talk about those things. And it's like, well, how do we know how to navigate what we're dealing with if you're not going to give us the tools to talk about all the hell Mm -hmm. that you went through that was obviously worse than what we're Mm -hmm. dealing with. But if you don't want to talk about that, you don't want to own up to the history, don't want to own up to the stories and make everything sound great, then that starts to lead to almost like there's this disconnect because then we're going to school Mm -hmm. and we're reading and finding out and on our own finding out about the ways in which black folks were mistreated. Mm -hmm. Then we're, we're related to black folks who lived through that time. Mm -hmm. And then we ask the questions and they're like, Oh, we don't want to talk about it. It's like, well, no, I I need this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, that's definitely is a point that I think we see within our families, but it's also a point in terms of at the institutions that we've been talking mm-hmm. about, when they don't connect exactly. to those histories, they don't own up to the histories, then it's hard to really navigate moving forward. I mean, I really think that with us talking about so much of the inside work, if you be up to it, I'd like yeah. to have another conversation where we kind of talk about how that work could expand beyond the institutions. Mm-hmm. Would you like to join us again for another conversation? Definitely. I appreciate that. That'd be yeah. awesome. Well, I'm thank you so much for all of your insights, and I look forward to talking to you again about some of the ways in which this work kind of goes beyond mm-hmm. uh, the institutions. Well, thank you, Chris, for hosting this show. I think this is one way in which it does go beyond, but also thank you so much for the generous invitation. All right. Thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank Reverend April Johnson, Executive Director of Reconciliation Ministry for the Christian Church Disciples of Christ for joining us today. I'd also like to thank the listeners who make this podcast possible. For those of you who'd like to continue supporting Margins as well as other podcasts and projects here at WVIK, please go to WVIK.org to lend your support.